So my message this morning is a message of hope, not some uh, vague hope that we may struggle to grasp, but a real concrete hope that comes from understanding that God wants to work out his process of salvation in our lives. Paul says in Romans 1 verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So everyone who's a Christian has received the gift of salvation, but it isn't a one-off thing. It's not, I was saved at this time, and now I try to carry on living for God as best I can. Because Paul writes these words in Philippians 2, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So salvation isn't a one-off thing, it's actually an ongoing process in which we're fully involved and in which God is working in us. And it's an ongoing process of spiritual growth and development. And although when we are saved, we're born again, we receive new life in Christ through the Holy Spirit, we all still retain our human nature with all its flaws because we were born into a fallen world. And because of our human nature, we all still make mistakes, get some things wrong. We all still say some things we shouldn't that cause hurt and don't say some things we should, maybe missing an opportunity to witness that God wants us to. We may do some things that we later regret or don't do some things that we wish we had done. Maybe we handle a situation badly or make a bad decision, which we later regret, so things don't work out just as we wanted them to. Or sometimes we can find ourselves just being drawn away from God's purposes by worries and anxieties or by other things, such as the burden of work. And all these things can make us feel disappointed in ourselves, disappointed in our faith in God, disappointed in life. And these regrets and disappointments can build up and they become like baggage which can just rob us of the joy that we once had in the Lord and the freedom that we once knew in Christ. And as Simon was saying last week, we can be very hard on ourselves, feeling like we've let people down, we've let God down, and we can beat ourselves up. I think we can all identify with that feeling at times. And I remember feeling like that five and a half years ago uh, for a while, when we had to make Matt Lockwood redundant, because I was a member of the leadership team, I was a trustee, I was involved in both the decision to hire Matt and also to make him redundant. And I just had to recognize to end up in that position, clearly we'd made some mistakes. And that I'd played a part in those mistakes. And so I would uh, never make excuses, I would just acknowledge that mistakes were made but just realize that making mistakes is just part of being human. So I'm in good company. And one of my favorite characters in the Bible is Simon Peter, and that's partly because of the mistakes he made when he got things wrong. After his wonderful confession, saying Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, he immediately got things very wrong when Jesus was talking about going to the cross. He says, never, Lord, that shall never happen to you. And Jesus severely rebuked him, saying, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. 
And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was arrested, Peter resorted to violence. He actually cut someone's ear off with his sword. And Jesus had again to rebuke him, telling him to put his sword away. And then even after being warned about it, Peter still denied Jesus three times after his arrest. And after the third denial, followed by the cock crowing, which is just what Jesus said would happen, it says Peter went out and wept bitterly. Peter must have thought at that moment that he'd completely blown it. He'd lost any right to be considered a disciple, a follower of Jesus. But then we read in the last chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus reinstates Peter. There's no need for confession or repentance. Both Jesus and Peter are fully aware of what Peter did and how he regretted it. But Jesus just asks one question, the only question that matters, and he asks it three times, Peter, do you truly love me? And each time Peter says yes, and Jesus then says, follow me. And my message of hope this morning is that the Lord knows we will get things wrong. But he is the God of second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh chances. His forgiveness is there whenever we ask for it. And the truth is that confession, repentance, forgiveness, and restoration isn't a one-off thing when we become a Christian. The Lord intends it to be a regular part of our Christian life as we work out our salvation with him. The Lord doesn't want us to beat ourselves up when we get things wrong, go on feeling bad that we've let ourselves down, we've let other people and the Lord down. Because he knows that we'll all get things wrong from time to time. He, He wants us to keep short accounts with him, just regularly coming to him, confessing our mistakes, saying sorry, and receiving his forgiveness and restoration. And one of the best models for that in the Bible is Psalm 51, written by someone in the Old Testament who blew it by committing a major sin, but also knew God's forgiveness and restoration, and that's King David. After committing such a major sin, David could have turned away from God, given up on himself and God. But he doesn't. He turns to God, confesses his sin, and asks for God's forgiveness. And we see that expressed in Psalm 51, which is known as a penitential psalm, where David asks for forgiveness and cleansing, and where David receives God's forgiveness. And so there's no mention of David's sin in the New Testament. In fact, David's described as a man after God's own heart. And I'm not going to dwell on it, but just a quick recap of David's sin. It starts off by telling us, and it's in 2 Samuel um, chapter 11, that in the spring, when kings go off to war, David stayed at home. So David's first sin was actually a sin of omission. He should have been engaged in the battle with his troops, but instead he sends his troops off and he stays home in a place of comfort and safety. Um, And then we know what happens next. David commits adultery with Bathsheba, and she ends up getting pregnant. So that's a sin of commission, David doing something he shouldn't do, because Bathsheba was married to Uriah. And he'd taken something that didn't belong to him. And having sinned, now David should have confessed his sin, but he didn't. He tries to cover it up, another sin. He gets Uriah back, tries to make him sleep with Bathsheba. But Uriah won't, because all his friends are fighting 
in the battle, and he won't um, go and sleep in his own home. And again, it's another opportunity to David to confess to Uriah and repent. But he doesn't. He commits an even greater sin. He actually arranges for Uriah to be struck down in the battle and killed. And then we read that after Bathsheba mourns for Uriah, David takes her as his wife. So David apparently gets what he wants. But although David tried to cover up his sin, the Lord saw everything. And it says what David had done displeased the Lord. So the Lord sends Nathan to David. And Nathan tells David the story about a rich man with many sheep and there's a poor man with one lamb. And this rich man takes this lamb off this poor man, the only thing he had. And David's indignant about this story. And then Nathan says, that rich man is you. And David's immediately convicted and realizes what he's done. And he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And although the Lord forgave David's sin, there were still consequences. That child, uh, Bathsheba conceived, dies. And then David finally goes and rejoins the battle with his troops. But we're just going to look at Psalm 51 now, where David confesses his sin, repents, and receives that forgiveness and restoration. And it's a wonderful psalm because it's a model we can all use as we work out our salvation with God. And it starts off with confession and repentance. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. So David starts by asking for God's mercy because he knows he's a God of love and compassion. And there's two images there, that of a papyrus scroll in which God's recorded all David's deeds. And that blotting out is like wiping the slate clean, removing that sin from the account so that David has nothing to answer for before God. Then there's like a, a dirty item of clothing. We know and dirty clothing gets washed and made clean again. And David felt dirty. And he's asking God to make him clean in his sight. And again, we all are very familiar with wearing clothes. They get dirty. We throw them in the washing machine. They come out clean. <clears throat> and we're used to doing that with our clothes. But it's important we learn to do the same thing uh, spiritually as well. And then David really confesses his sin. I know my transgressions are my sin is always before me. David's fully aware of the sin he's committed. Sins of omission, not doing things he should have done. Things of commission, doing things he knew was wrong. And David says these sins are always before him, meaning that they're always on his mind. But it's also like an image of something's always before you. You can't see beyond it. You can't get over it. It's like a barrier. And so we can sort of search our hearts. Are there any, is there anything in our lives, any feelings of guilt or regret that we're carrying around with us, that weigh us down, that are like a barrier stopping us from moving on with God? All we need to do is just confess it to God and repent. And then David carries on, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So recognition that when we do sin whether it's doing or saying something we shouldn't or not doing something or saying something we should, our first sin and foremost sin is against God. And his judgment is that we are um, a sinful people and that judgment is fully justified. We deserve 
uh, that judgment. So he goes on, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Uh, So we may feel condemned when we get things wrong, but the truth is we're all in the same boat. Our human nature is a sinful nature. Our sin may be more obvious to us than, than that of others, but the truth is we all get things wrong, either intentionally or unintentionally. We can't help it. It's part of our fallen human nature. And then David says, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. And again, the truth is that none of us have the truth, purity, and wisdom that God desires in our hearts. And Simon's spoken many times about the inward curvature of our heart, the innate selfishness in all of us. But the answer is not to beat ourselves up, but to keep a short account with God through regular confession and repentance. And the good news is that true confession and repentance always results in us receiving God's forgiveness. So this is what David says. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. So Jesus gave his life as a perfect sacrifice for our sin so that in him we could know complete forgiveness. Be made new. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, God in us, so that we have his help and guidance to live the lives God wants us to do. And both the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament is the same God. And God provided ways in the Old Testament for people to know his forgiveness for their sin, just not the perfect sacrifice we have in his son, Jesus. So that David knew that through confession and repentance, he could receive God's forgiveness. And although the consequences of David's sin remained, he knew that when he confessed his sin to the Lord and truly repented, his relationship with the Lord would be fully restored, just as if he'd never sinned. When he says, I shall be clean, I shall be whiter than snow, that is complete forgiveness. And we can all know that forgiveness when we keep short accounts with God and just regularly confess and repent of things we get wrong, mistakes we make. And then we come to the best bit of the psalm. We have confession, repentance, forgiveness, but then there's restoration where God is working on our lives, as it says in that verse, in the process of salvation. So it starts off, Create in me a pure heart, O God. And the Bible makes it clear that because of our fallen human nature, our hearts are impure. There's good in our hearts, but that goodness just gets polluted by our sinful or selfish nature of our old selves. Psalm 86 tells us we have a divided heart. And in Jeremiah 17, he writes this, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And so here's a a test of the condition of our hearts. It says in Romans 12, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. And our heart's desire is to bless others, to see others prosper. And we really feel good about ourselves when we've helped someone in need. 
We probably feel like we're being a good Christian, but here's a test that, that I continually fail. How do we feel when someone's blessed more than me? That could be in many different ways. It could be job, financially, family. When someone's really blessed, do we sense any internal struggle as we rejoice with them? 90% of our hearts rejoicing, but there's 10% asking questions. What did they do to deserve that? Why them and not me? We want to be able to rejoice, but sometimes just be a feeling of resentment can pop up in our hearts and catch us out. We think, where did that come from? But the truth is, our human hearts can never be totally pure. Only God can give us a pure heart. But God doesn't condemn us. He knows the condition of our hearts. This is why David says this in Psalm 51, verse 16. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So all God wants is for us to come to him with a humble heart, just be honest with him about the condition of our hearts, confessing where it's led us to do, say, or think the wrong things, and asking his forgiveness, and ask him to do his work, which is to create that pure heart in us. And that's what God promises to do. We can read it in Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So the good news about working out our salvation with God is that only God can make our hearts pure through his work of salvation in our lives. And that's what he desires to do by his spirit. And then it goes on. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Steadfast means constant, firm, unwavering, trusting. It says this in Psalm 112, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in his commands. He will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is secure. He will have no fear. And a young Christian uh, can be very excited one day when they learn or experience something new about God. But then they can be down another day when something didn't work out as they hoped when they thought that life would be straightforward once they became a Christian and they discover it's not. And being up and down like that is okay for a young Christian. But in an older Christian, who young Christians may look up to, it can be unhelpful and discouraging to others. So as we continue to grow in our relationship with the Lord, grow in maturity, the Lord will replace our somewhat fragile human spirit with a spirit that is steadfast, constant, unwavering, always trusting in him. And we can all think of men and women and God like that. We know that whenever we go to them, speak to them, we will get the same godly wisdom and spirit. And great examples in our church are Cyril and Gabrielle. And people like that, we know they're just not blown about by circumstances. They don't become distracted by the world. They're always standing firm because they've built their lives on the rock that is Christ. And they have been working out their salvation over the years. And it's not like those people like that are perfect. It's not like they never trip up. But they've just learned to keep short accounts with God. Regularly practicing confession and repentance. 
and just knowing what it is to receive forgiveness and restoration. And then David writes, Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Being a Christian isn't about following a religion. It's about receiving the gift of life. And it isn't initially about believing what's written in a book like the Bible. It's initially about experiencing the presence of God, his love for us, and then belief comes through our experience. And for me, this verse is the heart of the psalm. And it's what drew me to this psalm initially. And it's back in February when we had our 48 hours of prayer, just in the prayer room, me with the Lord alone. And I realized that the thing I wanted more than anything else was to know the Lord's presence, to know that he was with me and through me. And it's that verse there that really drew me to this psalm. Because there's no greater joy than to experience his presence with us. And we experience it in so many different ways, don't we? It could be just in a time of worship in church. It could be when we're out walking and we just feel the joy of the Lord. It could be when it speaks to us through his word and something leaps off the page. Could be when someone gives us a word that God's given them for us, or when we get a word for someone else, or when we pray for someone and we see a prayer answered. So many different ways we see God's presence with us. And the Christian life is meant to be an adventure. And more than anything else, the thing that makes it an adventure is experiencing the presence of the Lord, experiencing Him working through us. And without God's presence, the Christian life would be just hard work. Without his presence, we'd rapidly lose our joy. Uh, And one of the things I really enjoyed about the team from Eastgate when they were down with us a few weeks ago is just that sense that they knew the presence of the Lord and the joy that came from, from that in their lives. And it's the Holy Spirit who brings the presence of God to us. And Paul says in Ephesians 4, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed, for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a thing, because a person, only a person can be grieved. And the Holy Spirit will convict our spirits if there's something not quite right in our lives. And when the Holy Spirit convicts us, we can just feel uncomfortable in the presence of the Lord. And we've probably all experienced that. I've experienced that. You think everything's fine, and then you come into church, start worshipping, and all of a sudden you feel the conviction of the Spirit, and you realise there's something not quite right. But when we do experience that, it's important we don't feel condemned and avoid God's presence, but we just follow the example of David in Psalm 51. Confess and repent of our sin. Receive his forgiveness and restoration, and the slate's wiped clean, and again, we can come into that presence of the Lord. And then David goes on, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And as we read that, it sounds like we could be reading the New Testament, the joy of your salvation. And knowing that we've received the gift of salvation, true life now, life for eternity, is a source of great joy, but it's much more than just knowledge. Because Jesus says in John 15, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. We experience the life of Jesus through the Holy Spirit, and one of the things the Holy Spirit brings us is joy. And the joy of our salvation isn't about being happy all the time. We all know in life there are good times and bad, and hopefully most of the time it'll be good and we'll be happy, but we all experience tough times, times of sadness. 
But salvation is a process, not a one-off thing. And that process is primarily driven by our relationship with the Lord. And if we stop to think about it, true joy comes from relationships. Relationships with our natural family, church family, friends. Possessions never bring us joy. They may even bring us some momentary happiness, but it soon fades. And the joy of our salvation comes firstly from our relationship with the Lord. And secondly, from our brothers and sisters in Christ as we encourage one another to live out our relationship with God together. And all relationships need nurturing. They can be damaged when we get things wrong or don't do something we should do. And hopefully we're ready to say sorry when we get things wrong. And hopefully that person we may have hurt will be ready to forgive us and we can move on. It's the same with the Lord, except we know that he will forgive us when we confess that we've got things wrong. We generally express our sorrow to him. Because the Lord wants us to experience joy in our lives through our relationship with him. And then the end of this process of working out our salvation, we see fruitfulness. David writes in verse 13, Then I shall teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. So the Lord loves us. And year by year, he wants us to be growing in spiritual maturity and fruitfulness as he works in our lives. And my message of hope this morning is that that spiritual growth won't come from us trying to be good, trying to obey a set of rules like the Ten Commandments. It comes from our relationship with the Lord. The closer that relationship, the more we'll grow and bear fruit. And the truth is that our God is a holy God and we are an imperfect people. So God made that relationship possible through the perfect sacrifice of his son Jesus for our sins. And he gave us that gift of salvation. But he knows that even though we've been saved, because of our human nature, we'll still get things wrong from time to time. And his Holy Spirit will convict us. But it's important when we feel that conviction, we don't feel condemned and let our relationships with the Lord, one another, and with one another suffer and grow cold. Because my message of hope is that the Lord wants that relationship with us. He's always ready to forgive us and restore us as soon as we come to him and say we're truly sorry and ask for his forgiveness. And yes, if we've hurt someone in the process, try to put that right too. And just as we all need the Lord's forgiveness from time to time, we all need to be ready to forgive one another when someone's hurt us. Um, Because as Simon was saying last week, sometimes we can be more judgmental than the Lord. Yes, the Lord convicts us, but when we confess and truly repent, he just wipes the slate clean as if we'd never sinned. So let's keep short accounts with God, regularly confessing things that we've got wrong, repenting, saying sorry, receiving his forgiveness and restoration. And as we do that, working out our salvation and God working us, the result will be fruitful lives. Uh, Simon wrote a paper on prayer and fasting a couple of weeks ago, and in that he quoted Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, talking about Christian life being a race. And finishing the race and receiving the imperishable crown from the Lord. And the truth is, it's how we finish the race that counts, not how we start it. 
Someone who starts the race well, but then drops out, never sees the finishing line, never receives that imperishable crown. But in God's sight, it doesn't matter if we have a couple of false starts or if we stumble along the way, if we're running strongly when we cross that finishing line and receive that imperishable crown from the Lord. So my message of hope is that God's put this model, and I think Psalm 51 is a wonderful model, to show us how he wants us to keep short accounts with him, confessing and repenting, and then receiving his forgiveness and restoration as he works in our lives.